Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall, rather than focusing on the problem, which we're all sick of hearing about, take a look at the growing activism around the crisis of gun violence. Clips today are from Hope College, CBS News, MSNBC, Think Tech Hawaii, WSLS 10, and the PBS NewsHour, with additional members-only clips from MSNBC and Democracy Now! On November 30th, 2021, a mass shooting at Oxford High School took the lives of four students, Hannah St. Juliana, Madison Baldwin, Tate Meir, and Justin Schilling. Six students and one teacher were injured, and nearly 1,800 students were left traumatized. We are both survivors of the Oxford High School shooting. The day passed in a blur. I remember rushing out of my house that morning before school, quickly hugging my parents goodbye. I remember sitting in my history class next to Justin, unaware that it would be the last time I would see or joke around with him. I remember the sound of gunshots echoing through the halls and my teacher slamming the door shut. I remember frantically pushing desks towards the door for a barricade as my classmates screamed and cried. I remember texting my mom, I love you, and her begging me for information when I had none to give. I remember praying my brother was alive in the classroom two doors down from me. I remember a stapler being shoved in, into my hand to use like a weapon as a bullet went through my classroom door. I remember finally getting out of the school and desperately trying to find my mom or dad as ambulances whipped past me and helicopters flew overhead. Worst of all, I remember waiting, waiting for news, waiting for names. Tate, Hannah, Madison, Justin. My heart broke every time. The day went by as it normally would. Time was ticking by, work was being procrastinated, and I was laughing with my friends. Before fifth hour, my friends and I split up in the hallway. We said our normal see you laters and I'll text yous. I sat down in my class and got situated, and the next thing I knew, gunshots rang in the distance. I remember hearing the screaming. I remember running through the hall. I remember pushing through the glass doors and meeting the cold wind. I remember stopping a few steps out of the door. My brother. I frantically checked my phone. I saw a text from him. He was in a classroom and he was safe. I ran to a family member's house nearby. I felt helpless. As the hours ticked by, I sat glued to the TV. News channels broadcasted people injured. Was it 1, 10, 20? How many people died? 0, 5, 10? No one knew. We waited and waited for the dreaded texts and calls to come through. Four children had died. Madison, Tate, Hannah, and Justin. From that moment on, I knew that my life, my community, and my world would never be the same. In the weeks following the shooting, we felt lost. We couldn't eat, we couldn't sleep, we couldn't laugh, and yet every day we had to pretend like we were okay. After 42 nearly sleepless nights, we returned to a school environment with classmates and teachers. The day was filled with hugs, therapy dogs, and lots of anxiety. Going to school became physically and emotionally exhausting. Every day we put on a brave face for our little brothers. Every day we had to go to school knowing that four students never would again. Every day we had to stare at the empty desk next to us in history class that Justin sat at. Every day we woke up, went to school, and we were terrified that it would happen again. The days passed slowly and I was restless. I wanted to do something. Something that would help me move forward and process what I'd experienced. My government teacher, Ms. Jasinski, urged my best friend and me to use our anger to fight for change. At first, I was confused. How could I do anything? She told us about an organization called March for Our Lives that was organizing a lobby group to convince legislators to pass laws to help prevent mass shootings. We went to Lansing in February, just 85 days after the Oxford shooting, and lobbied for legislation. That day was one of the most pivotal moments of my life. It left such an impact on me that I knew that I had to continue ad advocating for change. Later that spring, I had the opportunity to lead a new group of lobbyists and met with even more representatives. Lobbying at the Capitol was not only an awakening for my involvement in activism against gun violence, but for my overall political involvement. It taught me that the only way that things are going to get done at a legislative level is that if we as dutiful citizens ask for it. Asking for change makes it personal. Telling your story makes it personal. We asked for safe gun storage and mental health services in schools. We cried, we yelled, we urged representatives and senators for change. It was hard and really scary. It reopened wounds that were not healed yet. Some representatives told us no, they wouldn't make a change. But some told us yes, some promised to fight with us. 
And yet a year later, we still await that promise. My experience after the shooting looked a little bit different. I did my fair amount of sulking, which was to be expected, and it seemed all I had energy for was going to school. My friends and I would talk about our stories and attempt to process what we had gone through. I could not bring myself to watch the news, and I couldn't watch any press conferences or court cases. It just felt like all they had to talk about was um, the gunman, and they blasted his picture, and that's just not what I needed to see. It was all too gruesome, and it felt even a little insensitive. In the last few months of my senior year, I had no emotional availability left for anything else. It wasn't until the school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, that I realized I needed to put my pain to the side and do something. I could not sit back and watch more children be murdered in their schools. In the year following the shooting, we've been fighting for change while simultaneously trying to heal ourselves. We're reminded every day of the issue of gun violence with headline after headline of a new mass shooting. Most recently, we are faced with the tragedy that occurred in Michigan State. Many of our friends and classmates even go to Michigan State that went to Oxford with us. This is the second school shooting they have been through in the last 14 months. 14 months, two mass shootings. That's not normal. Yet again and again, we are met with thoughts and prayers. This is not enough. We need change. In May, after our graduation, we were relieved. It was all over. We could go to college and leave behind the tragedy in Oxford. However, leaving our town and forgetting our past was harder than we could have imagined. Our brothers, our friends, our teammates were all still there. We still had a duty to fight for those that we left behind, and we still had a duty to fight for all of those affected by gun violence. Natalie's sister, Lauren Schiller, laid the groundwork for a new student organization at Hope College called Students Demand Action last spring. SDA is an organization dedicated to preventing gun violence. We knew that this was something we wanted to be a part of. At home, everyone was so focused on the shooting, keeping school, keeping the school safe and providing mental health services that the transition to a new school was shocking. No one really understood the trauma we faced and there weren't the numbers of support that there were in Oxford. We joined SDA with the hopes of spreading awareness of gun violence to students at Hope College in order to gain traction for a movement towards preventative legislation. Through our suffering, we realized the only way to get through our grief is to help others along the way. We challenge all of you to do the same. We ask that you use your life experiences and your struggles to find your purpose through activism. So we decided to put a few ways that you all can get involved in the fight against gun violence. So the first, and in my opinion, the easiest way is definitely to join SDA. Uh, you can sign up on, for our email list and follow us on Instagram to keep up with all of our events and meetings we're going to have coming up. The second thing that you can do is to contact your representatives. And on the pamphlet that you guys received, there's more information on how to do that. But we need to tell them what we want and what we need. This is no longer a partisan issue. It's not about parties. And make sure your representatives know that. Their jobs are at stake because we're voting them in, and we can just as easily vote them out if they don't support gun legislation. Tell them that in your email. Tell them your story, why this is important to you. And the last thing is to stay up to date on current events. And when we share information about these current events, it's important that we remember no notoriety, meaning that we don't give attention to the perpetrators of these crimes. So when you're sharing information about it, please consider just sharing information about the lives that were lost in each event. The debate over gun laws is following predictable patterns following the mass shooting at the Covenant School in Nashville that took the lives of three children and three staff members. Just over five years ago, the voices supporting gun control got louder when hundreds of thousands of people turned up across the country for the first ever March for Our Lives. We're joined now by one of those voices, David Hogg. He helped start the gun control advocacy group. March for Our Lives after surviving the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas high school shooting in 2018, where 17 people were killed. David, as somebody who has experienced a school shooting, what goes through your head when you hear news stories uh, like the ones Monday out of Nashville? What goes through my head isn't just thinking about the policies that should be passed and how we could prevent these things in the future. The first thing that goes through my head are the echoes that I still have to this day of hearing my sister scream as a 14-year-old that had four friends die in our high school that day, uh, and the unconscionable wailing that I had to hear from her. And when I think about 
are the screams of the parents that have to find out after the, you know, they find out that their kid isn't just missing, their, their child is dead. That's what I think about. And the enormous pain and suffering that comes with this, um, that often, you know, the media can only show so much of, um, but you really never see the full scale of. Right. And it reinitiates the trauma for all of you who uh, the numbers of you who have been through this all across this country in incidents like this. It does. It does. And it's exhausting because every single time this happens, it's just another cycle of endless debate in action a lot of the time. And then just, you know, people, Republican leaders like, uh, you know, the representative of the district in Nashville say it themselves, you know, they don't, they don't think that they're going to be able to do much to address this or really anything at all a lot of the time. And that's just shameful. It's, it's awful. You know, we, we can all disagree, but the idea that we can't do anything to save our kids from gun violence is inherently antithetical. The very principles of our nation, the ideals of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Let me, and I don't care if it's a Democrat or Republican. If somebody thinks that we can't do anything to stop our kids from dying in schools and their communities, they shouldn't be in government. Let me ask you about that. After you, you mentioned exhaustion, after a shooting like this, there's a mixture of anger and exhaustion. How? As somebody who's been working so hard on this issue for so many years, how do you read that mix right now? Um, is it is it worse than when you started first started working? Um, and is it um, well? How do you how do you read that mix of anger and exhaustion? I think the way that I read that mixture, the mixture of anger and exhaustion that I feel after these shootings, is to understand that it's obviously valid that we're feeling this way and understandable but that we should not let our exhaustion evolve into fatalism and just acting like this is the way that things have to be. It doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't. States like Massachusetts have a common sense set of laws in place that is a stringent process to get a gun, but is relatively straightforward. If every state had the same son, the same gun death rate as Massachusetts, we could cut gun death by 70% in this country. This isn't theoretical. This is something that we could do right now if we federalized those laws. So what I really try to do is hold on to the hope as hard as that is, especially in these dark moments, because ultimately we can't stop fighting, especially when our kids are dying every day from this. What have you learned in the last five years about what's possible, uh, where where the points of agreement are and just how to work towards the goals that you've been uh, pushing for? I think what I've learned about what's possible is Frankly, a lot of what's possible is up to the American people. When we started speaking out after the shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida in 2018, I was 17 years old. There were people that said, you're just a bunch of kids. You're not going to change anything because this is Florida. And we said, watch us. And we went out there and we showed up at the state legislature. And despite having a, a Republican trifecta, a state known other than this, the sunshine state as the gunshine state, we passed gun laws in a Republican state legislature with a Republican governor as they were running for office. And not a single person who voted for those laws lost their reelection because they voted for those laws. What I've learned over these years is that what is possible is what we believe is possible. If we believe that we can't address this and that all hope is lost, all hope will be lost. We have to realize that we can address this and we, could, we can substantially reduce the number of gun deaths. And the last thing I would say, is that look, there's a different, there's a lot of disagreement on how we address this issue, but there is agreement on the fact that we need to act. All of us agree on that. And what I've learned is that there's a dis, there is a difference between disagreement and hatred. I can respect people who don't agree with me, but I can't accept that there's nothing that we can do to address this issue. When we can fund more research at the CDC and NIH to figure out what policies work best and fund more mental health for the two thirds of gun deaths that are suicides. We can make progress on this, but it's going to come from dialogue and not debate. We understand what we don't agree on. We must focus on what we can and act there and get involved with our state legislatures and vote, too. We are just hours away from a special caucus meeting among Senate Democrats to discuss gun safety legislation. It's an urgent push for any action. And joining those lawmakers in Washington, D.C. today is Fred Guttenberg, 
whose daughter Jamie died in the Parkland shooting in 2018. He is also co-author of the book American Carnage, Shattering the Myths that Fuel Gun Violence. Fred, you're such an important person to talk to on this issue. You're about to talk to those lawmakers again. We've been covering here one mass shooting after another, and yet this issue is still just a big political football. You have the former president and leading candidate for the GOP nomination for 2024 saying how he would handle additional gun safety measures last night. Take a listen to this. I would do uh, numerous things. For instance, schools, we would harden very, very much harden. And I also I'm a very believer. I believe in teachers. I love teachers. Many of these teachers are soldiers, ex-soldiers, ex-policemen. They're people that really understand weapons. And you don't need five percent of the teachers would be more than you could ever have if you're going to hire security guards. But in addition to that, have security guards. Uh, You have to harden your entrances. You have to make schools safe. What's your response to that? Well, I ignored him last night, and I think America needs to ignore him going forward. But but here's a response. I've been here since Sunday, meeting with every office, Republican and Democrat in the House and Senate. And I've done a bit of media this week as well. And I've said all week, stop listening to the liars. Um, stop listening to Donald Trump. He's one of the liars. Everything he said is factually false. Um, and so I'll just say this. My daughter should be turning 20 in July. 20 years ago, there were 200 million guns in America. Today, 20 years later, there's over 400 million plus ghost guns. 20 years ago, AR-15 sales were fewer than 2% of all guns sold. Today, they are 25% of all guns sold. That's everything you need to know to understand gun violence. The reason we wrote the book is to talk about how we got here, the lies and the myths that brought us here and what we need to do going forward. I understand you're not listening to Donald Trump and you're urging people not to, but too many in his party are listening to him. And they're afraid to break with him. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, um, so I said I've been here all week and I've been in every office in the House and the Senate. While here, the Democrats actually invited me to come speak to the caucus. The Republicans have walked by. They are so afraid of a base that for whatever reason has replaced facts with alternative facts. And that's who they speak to now. Um, I'm tuning all of them out. 80% of America agrees with me. 80% of America wants to do something about gun violence. Mm -hmm. And any legislator who does not get connected with what the 80% of America wants, you're gonna get voted out. The 24 election, is the election to finally settle this. And I have the the absolute belief, okay, that Americans are going to turn out in record numbers. Listen, Anna, this is a book about gun violence that we wrote. About gun violence. It's not a novel. It's not a mystery. And it's one of the top-selling books in the country. And I say that because it just says Americans want to understand how we got here in only 20 years and what we can do about it. I think that's the, the key, the last part there. And, and yet I think it's so frustrating because we keep banging our head on the walls as we cover these shootings and it's getting worse, not better. But but this week in Texas, days after that horrific shooting in Allen where eight people died, mm-hmm. we did see rare GOP votes yeah. in the state house of representatives in favor of a stricter gun law that would raise the purchase age of AR style rifles in that case. How, how do you see this? Is it a sign that the tides are turning perhaps on the Republican party's stance on gun control? Well, it is a sign that there still are people in the Republican party who really do value life and who want to put the ability to stop the next shooting over and above the ability to support a lobby that profits off of the death of people like my daughter. And so I am so thankful to those two Republicans who did actually vote the way they did. We need more courage and more Republicans like them. I don't think we're going to find it until um, the Republicans in 24 take a shellacking and it becomes clear that it was because of this issue. Our ad system respects your privacy, but if you'd like to get rid of them entirely, we would love to have you as a member of the show. 
members enjoy an ad-free version of the show, as well as bonus episodes and bonus content in each regular episode, plus extremely handy chapter markers that help identify and navigate the clips. Sign up for membership at bestofleft.com support. And joining me now is Tennessee State Representative Justin Jones, just reinstated this uh, on Monday to the State House on his way to Memphis to join in solidarity his colleague Justin Pearson. So it appears that he does have the votes to go to the State House. What's your reaction to Governor Lee? The executive order strengthening background checks for gun purchases, setting a 72-hour period for reporting criminal or mental health information to the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. I'm sure it's not what you would want, but is this the first glimmer of change coming from the governor? Hey, Andrew. Um, thank you for having me on. And um, I'm, on, I'm in the car on the way to Memphis, so excuse any signal breakage. But um, I think it's an important step forward. But I think it, it goes to Frederick Douglass's wisdom that power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did. It never will. And the governor would not be taking this step forward without the actions and demands of these young people showing up at the Capitol um, by the thousands. And so I think this is a first step. I talked to his chief of staff this morning and I said, you know, we want continued good faith negotiations to get a ban on these assault weapons, um, a ban on high capacity magazines, universal background checks. Um, there, there are many more steps that we need to take to make sure that our students and children are protected in these schools and our community as a whole. And so my message to the governor is that this is a good step forward, but there's much more work to do and that this is just the beginning and it should not be the end of, of our negotiations. Do you have any any confidence that the House leader there will work with you on this? Because you had been eloquent, you and Justin Pearson, about how you were excluded from committees and not taken seriously, not given them a chance to speak. Well, I'm hearing in the House, not just from members of our party, but I've talked to some Republicans who are asking uh, Speaker Cameron Sexton to resign. He does not represent the majority of Tennesseans or, I believe, of that body. His attacks on democracy are extreme, and they're an assault on, on all of our you know, vision of a community that is a multiracial democracy. And so Cameron Sexton needs to resign. Um, we, we have clergy, community members calling on him to resign. There's an investigation going into um, his misuse of per diem. And so um, I don't know if Cameron will be there much longer. And have you been placed on any committees, or is it too soon to tell whether you're going to be given uh, a meaningful role? other than speaking out and protesting and uh, speaking for the disenfranchised. Yes, yeah, so uh, Speaker Cameron Sexton has not put me on any committees yet, but I was able to get my ID turned back on and was able to go back to my office. Um, we're still you know, asking to be treated as full members of this body, something that he never has treated us as, as, as young black lawmakers from the beginning, you know, when I entered in January. But like I said, Cameron, um, he's taken a step too far. And I even hear members of his own party calling for his resignation. And so that's a step um, forward, I think, for our state. And to remove him and to be, to be able to really center democracy in our state um, is going to be the next step um, of, of our movement and to get past these um, common sense gun laws. So I mentioned um, expanding background checks and the assault weapons ban. The third one that I would mention, which is also still pending, is an enhanced background check. And this one closes what's called the Charleston loophole. And what the Charleston loophole is, is the Charleston loophole is um, a loophole that exists that basically says, if you go to buy a gun and your background check is not completed within three business days, um, that dealer can choose to sell you the gun, even though the background check is not finished. And what that means is that, um, you know, most good dealers, most safety conscious dealer will wait until the next background checks come back. And once they come back, it'll give you either what's called a proceed or a deny. And what a proceed or a deny is, is as they say, a proceed means you know, legally they pass the background check and assuming there are no other red flags for the purchaser, you can sell the gun. Whereas a deny means there's something that came back in the background check and you absolutely cannot sell the gun. So, um, but oftentimes, you know, it takes NICS and the FBI a bit of time to look at your records. Most of them come back very quickly, but there's a few where there may be something that they need to double check to see whether someone might pass a background check or not. So what they do is they put you into what's called a delay status, which means they don't have an answer right away. 
but they're looking for it. Now, the chart, the way the law is currently written is um, you, if that background check has not been completed in three business days, that dealer at their discretion can legally sell you the gun under federal law. I mean, certain states have closed this loophole on a state level, but on a federal level, it means you can sell the gun. And that um, that loophole was how the Charles in the Charleston church shooting several years ago, how that shooter got his gun. So closing that and making sure that you have a concrete, you know, proceed or deny prior to transferring the gun um, is really an important law. And you know, all of these laws that I've I've mentioned, the assault weapons ban the enhanced background check closing the Charleston loophole and universal background checks are all things that um, that you know gun safety advocates and gun owners all agree on as really low-hanging fruit in terms of you know things that really could continue to save more lives. So that's one of the reasons why you know they're important pieces of um, legislation and hopefully there will be some movement on them at some point. The bills have been drafted. They're they're sitting there waiting for some sort of vote, um, and hopefully that vote is is passing them. Why is it so hard to get them through Congress? It would seem obvious that uh, the fewer guns in the country, uh, the the less gun violence. Especially when you're talking about guns that are uh, manufactured for war scenarios, not self defense by any stretch. Um, why is it so hard? Uh, who is opposing? I mean, I, I I think I know part of the answer here. Anyway, who is opposing all these uh, gun control measures? You know, the the gun lobby is extremely strong, and the gun lobby is best served by people buying guns. Um, and that includes citizens buying more guns, and it in, and it involves law enforcement needing to buy more guns to protect citizens. And, you know, it's an industry where the gun industry profits as long as guns, as long as guns are being sold. And they have a tremendous lobbying, they have effort, and they fund these politicians, which, which sadly, is a disconnect between what their constituents actually want in most cases. Um, and the money they're getting in political in political fundraising. So wow. it's it's a tricky issue. It's it's certainly not a new issue. Um, the gun lobby has been around and quite strong for a long time, and it's gotten more strong and more extreme in in recent years. Certainly in this in this market, um, I was encouraged. I have to say by the fact that there was in response recently both to the Uvalde shooting. Um, and the Buffalo shooting, which were both just horrific, that there was a moment that caused everyone to pause and not listen to the political lobbyists and actually get together and pass bipartisan um, legislation. So I am hopeful that if they were able to do this, I hope it doesn't take more people dying to get to that moment. But I am hopeful that um, there will be additional efforts on the federal level and certainly um, on the state level, we've seen a lot of exciting, important bills um, being passed and being worked on in, in the state. And Hawaii is certainly one of those states that, you know, leading the charge in terms of passing really important gun safety bills. So my hope is that um, even if it takes longer, even if it's a long game on the federal level, that, you know, hopefully some of these states will pass some really important legislation in the shorter term. It's been an encouraging week for gun control advocates. In New York, the Supreme Court ruled that the state can continue enforcing a Democratic-backed law that bans guns from sensitive places like schools, playgrounds, and Times Square, while appeals work their way through the system. And in Illinois, the governor signed a law banning the sale and possession of military-style semi-automatic weapons. It will also require legal owners to register their assault rifles. Joining me is the founder of Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America, Shannon Watts, who's also celebrating the 10-year anniversary of the organization's work. Shannon, welcome in. What do you make of these latest developments? Do you think things are trending in a positive direction in this country? Oh, absolutely. The gun safety movement is stronger than it's ever been. We are seeing the political power of our volunteers 
Uh, in state houses all across the country, we passed the first federal legislation in over 25 years this last summer. Um, you know, our volunteers in their red shirts are relentless. And in Illinois, they've spent hours and hours uh, in the state house day after day to get this life-saving gun safety package passed. And they were standing by the governor's side as he signed it in law. So, look, this work doesn't happen overnight. As you mentioned, we've been doing this for 10 years. Um, but there's a playbook that we're working from, which is to work on this legislatively, electorally, and culturally. And in the state of Illinois, for example, we elected 16 of our own volunteers and survivors, including 10 to the state house. And this is how you make change happen, by really working on this issue holistically and at all levels of government. Now, let's talk about Illinois specifically. At least 74 Illinois sheriff's departments are vowing to defy the state's assault weapons ban. What do you make of those who advocate for law and order and public safety refusing to follow the law? I mean, it's it's absurd. They are putting politics above public safety. Sheriffs are law enforcement, right? They're not judges. They're not lawmakers. It's reckless for them to not do their job. Um, and, and even Governor Pritzker has said that state police are responsible for law enforcement and that, that, in fact, if they don't do their job, they won't have a job. The governor has been a huge advocate and a champion of this law. It is supported by people in Illinois. And I really hope that we will see state police and law enforcement follow the law of the land and fill the gap to keep these communities safe. Now, over in New York, the case there that's kind of gone back and forth, um, it gets very complicated. But within that case, the most recent decisions, Justices Alito and Thomas attached a statement to their decision, which reads in part, applicants should not be deterred by today's order from again seeking relief if the second court does not, second circuit court does not. What do you make of the justices seeming to encourage gun control opponents to keep the fighting up despite this decision to allow this democratic law? to stay in place? Well, look, the, the Supreme Court decision in Bruin last summer absolutely opened the door to gun extremism, but it did not close the door to gun safety. Gun laws save lives. And when a judge strikes down a gun law, they are putting our lives in danger. You know, most courts continue to uphold these important gun safety laws since the Bruin decision. Um, and so, you know, we will continue our fight to uphold these life-saving laws to make sure we're electing people who nominate judges who will uphold these laws. Um, it is the goal to keep people free from, from gun violence. And that is something that every lawmaker, every elected official, every appointed judge agrees on. Let's talk about what's happening in Virginia. The latest on that six-year-old Virginia boy accused of shooting his first grade teacher. We learned this week that a school administrator was alerted to a possible weapon on the six-year-old and his bag was checked, but nothing was found. Now, your organization went to the Virginia State Capitol on Friday to advocate for stronger gun control laws. You were quoted as saying, quote, we are tired of Governor Youngkin's thoughts and prayers without action. We need to hold lawmakers accountable when they fail to act. What are you calling on the governor to do? Well, you know, the governor is a lifelong NRA member who is running scared on this issue because he knows the vast majority of people in Virginia support gun safety. He refuses uh, to take the NRA's endorsement. Um, but unfortunately, he's not doing anything on this issue, right? He continues to offer thoughts and prayers, empty rhetoric. Um, let's be clear that this tragedy was a failure across the board. A six-year-old should never be able to access a gun. And there's some really serious questions that need to be answered, right, about the school report that we saw that this child may have had a gun, uh, but was failed to be searched. I want to be clear that most gun owners are responsible. They store their guns responsibly, but it is on, the onus is on adults always to keep their guns locked, unloaded, and separate from ammunition. And so that is something that we can do culturally, but also legislatively. And finally, here with the last few seconds, we have Newport News Police Chief describe the incident as unprecedented. But the numbers that were analyzed by Washington Post for K through 12 school shootings show that since 1999, in at least 11 cases, the person who pulled the trigger was no older than 10. And in fact, in Wichita, Kansas, police arrested a man and woman for child endangerment after their two year old shot her mother in the foot. What are your final thoughts on this issue? America is the only developed country where children get guns and shoot themselves or other people. It is senseless. It is preventable. It is 
stopped by something called secure storage, right? We can all agree that gun owners should keep their guns locked, unloaded, and separate from ammunition. This doesn't have to happen, and yet it happens over and over again. There are many states that have taken action and passed laws that protect children and make sure that adults securely store their guns. Um, we could use this as a, at a federal level, but in the meantime, moms demand action and students demand action. Volunteers will go state by state and make sure these laws are passed to protect all Americans. Peacemakers is a nonprofit planning to go into Lynchburg, where a 15-year-old was shot in the chest. And, of course, joining us now live is Mr. William Richards and Kenneth Hunter. Good morning. How y'all feeling? Feeling good. Feeling good. Good, good, good. So talk to us, first of all, your reaction to the 15-year-old who was shot in the chest. You, sir. Well, first, uh, 13 years ago, you know, I was the same young man you know, with a gun in my hand, mm-hmm. doing what I felt like I needed to do right. to, to survive whatever my circumstances. So the first thing I did was identify, and I felt his pain. Mm-hmm. And I realized it was something that was missing. You know, we the, that, that element of peace, that's something that we are creating, mm-hmm. it was missing. Got it. So you feel so like... So identified. Identified something was not, not right with that situation. I, right. Gotcha. And then at the same time, I identified with the same behavior mm-hmm. because I know I used to be that person. Gotcha. I had that rage or I had that misunderstanding and it took me to wherever it took me. Gotcha. Mr. Kenneth, your reaction? Well, I was saddened um, by something that is happening all too often in our communities. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a degree of relief that in this particular instance, this young man didn't die. But all too often individuals are passing away mm-hmm. and it's becoming more and more frequent. So I was saddened. Um, I also have children, you know, grandchildren, wow. you know, so you get really worried about the community and the state of the community as it relates to our everyday life and our own safety. Beautiful. So talk about what your plan is today. Well, today we are going to the 7,000 block of the Timberlake area in Lynchburg where this shooting happened. Um, this is what the peacemakers have done consistently. We try to be proactive as opposed to reactive. But today we're going to go on the scene and we're going to go down there and march and talk about uh, how we're going to keep these neighborhoods safe from mm-hmm. here on out. And how many people plan on coming with you all? It's who, whoever shows up. There we go. It's, there it's we go. about the community. Yep, I mean, we, we, we have no problem being the vanguard and stepping out because we're going to do our duty. Right. We're going to canvas. We're going to knock on doors. We're going to give information. We're going to give you this ribbon. We're going to say you in unity yeah. with you nonviolence. Okay, if that's what you're about, then step out here with us because we are here to keep the community safe and take a village. And so what other information? You said there's a ribbon and some packets of information. Right. What, what well, are you giving? I mean, if you have views that we can get into job court, yes, you know, we can get you local jobs. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of us have jobs locally and we might be able to tap into something that can set you up for a better future. Yeah. So, so we got all sorts of type of information. And then the ribbon, the ribbon represents the, the stand in unity for nonviolence. Gotcha. So we ask that everybody put it on their door. Beautiful, beautiful. Lindsay? So, I mean, talk about, you know, the goal. I mean, I know that you've said, you know, it's all about just reaching out to youth, making sure that they know they have other options. But what else is your mission? I mean, talk about what it means to you to be a part of that and what you really hope comes out of doing this work. Well, ultimately, like I said, the mission is to be proactive as opposed to reactive. So we want to start getting to the core and the source of what is causing these problems. These kids are not savages or animals. They're miseducated, uh, dealing with abject poverty. Uh, also, culturally, you know, there are some improvements we need to make. So we're trying to get in the neighborhoods, offer resources to reverse this trend. These kids need to be educated and we want to get out there and hopefully be able to mediate teach conflict resolution and um, do it at such a rate that we can directly impact these communities uh, the way the peacemakers have been doing thus far. It's been an up and down week for both advocates and opponents of laws restricting gun buyers by age. On Monday in Texas, where there were two mass murders this month in the space of a week, a House committee unexpectedly passed a bill to raise the age for buying a semi-automatic rifle from 18 to 21. But the legislation has stalled and is now unlikely to get a vote in the full House. And on Wednesday, a judge in Virginia struck down federal laws barring gun dealers from selling handguns to anyone younger than 21. 
The Justice Department is likely to appeal that ruling, which does not affect either state laws or private gun sales. Lisa Geller is the Director of State Affairs at the Johns Hopkins Center for Gun Violence Solutions. Lisa, there are eight states that that have age restrictions, uh, uh, fairly tight age restrictions for buying any kind of firearm, any any firearm at all. Do we have an sense of what it tells us about whether it, it, it helps or not? We do. So as you mentioned, there are several states that have raised the age to 21 to buy certain firearms, some cases all firearms. And what we know, stepping back, is that the 18 to 20-year-old period is a extremely high-risk time for teenagers. We know that arrests for murders are highest among this age group. We also know that policies in states to restrict gun purchases to those 18 to 20 have lower rates of gun suicide. So we do know that protecting those under 21 from buying guns is backed by evidence and keeps youth safe. The two recent shootings, or last year rather, uh, the Uvalde shooting the, and the, t- the shooting at the uh, Buffalo supermarket, both cases, the shooters were teenagers who bought uh, their weapons legally. Do you believe that an age limit would have helped in those cases? I do believe that. I think there are a number of other situations we can point to, notably the Sandy Hook shooter and the Parkland shooter who also bought their guns legally shortly after turning 18. And we know that if there were a law in place to restrict that purchase until they were 21, they wouldn't have been able to buy guns just at the time period that they did and carry out the mass harm that they did. What's the significance, do you think, of the the ruling in Virginia striking down the federal law uh, that restricted handgun sales uh, to people 21 and over? Well, as you noted, this is federal law. Federal law states that you have to be 21 years old to buy a handgun from a licensed dealer. So the Department of Justice has already indicated that they're going to appeal this. I don't want to be an alarmist here because this is just one district court judge, one federal judge ruling that this law is unconstitutional. Um, It does not apply yet to residents of Virginia. So I don't want to state that this is going to go into effect immediately, even if the higher court does Um, agree with the lower court. But we know that this is dangerous. This goes against the will of the people. In fact, even a Fox News poll from just a couple weeks ago found that 81% of people are in favor of raising the age to 21 to buy all guns. And we also know that guns are the leading cause of death for teenagers. So doing this and, and issuing this kind of dangerous decision at a time when Guns are killing teens more than any other means is extremely dangerous and not consistent with what we see in the data. But this ruling also doesn't apply to private gun sales. So someone 18 to 20 could buy a gun uh, from a private dealer in the parking lot of a licensed dealer, but he couldn't go inside. I mean, is that sort of a, a problem that you'd like to see closed in the law? There are too many loopholes in our gun laws. Just as you indicated, this does not apply to private sales. At Johns Hopkins, at the Center for Gun Violence Solutions, we believe that there should be universal background checks on all gun sales. We believe that the the age um, to buy guns should be raised for all gun sales because it really doesn't make sense that someone can't go into a federally licensed firearms dealer at 18 and buy a gun. But as you indicated, they can have a gun given to them as a gift in some states or they can buy it through a private transaction. So absolutely, this law should be um, should be amended and loopholes should be closed to keep people safe. You mentioned earlier the link uh, with suicide, and obviously uh, gunshot deaths is, uh, I think, the leading cause of death uh, among children now. Is there any evidence of a link between states where it's easier to get a gun and higher rates of suicide? The biggest predictor of a suicide is access to a firearm. We know that 90 percent of suicide attempts with a firearm are fatal whereas only two to three percent of suicide attempts with non-firearm means are lethal. So if there's anything you take away from this from this um, conversation, it's that guns are the reason why suicides are so high in this country. We know that putting time and space between someone and a firearm purchase is the best way to save their life. And that goes for children, but also adults. And we also know that many mass shooters, particularly these young mass shooters, may be suicidal. And when they are carrying out this mass shooting, they're also at the end taking their own life. So I do believe that mass shooting prevention also has to include suicide prevention. You know, after the mass shooting in Texas last week, we heard the uh, governor of Texas come out and when asked about tougher gun laws, talked about more mental health services. 
Is that, I mean, they make it sound like it's one or the other. Is that a false dichotomy? We absolutely need more mental health care in this country. But there's no way to address gun violence in this country without addressing the gun. Data shows that only about 4% of violence in this country can be directly linked to mental illness. So even if we were able to prevent every single individual living with mental illness from buying a gun, we would not see meaningful reductions in violence and even more specifically in gun violence. So I would never say that a, a shooter is mentally well, but that does not mean that they are mentally ill. I'm going to ask uh, Pastor Watt and Dr. Sura, uh, both of you, your question, and then I'll pass the mic down so that you can you can just bounce off of each other. So, uh, Pastor Watt, um, I was wondering if you what suggestions you have. So, kind of flipping the script this time, uh, what suggestions you have for individuals um, becoming more involved in community based local activism or in, in raising their awareness of uh, the opportunity for um, addressing this issue locally. Um, and Dr. Sura, uh, you've incorporated activism into your work as a scholar and as a writer. Uh, what have you learned about incorporating activism into vocation um, that you would like to share with the audience? I, I'm, a, I'm a strong believer in working from the bottom up. Strong believer, because I've watched, I just had the most interesting conversation just about this meeting that I'm in right now. I've gun activists telling me, giving me statistics, why people should be having guns and everything. And every time you talk to somebody about guns, I call it the chicken and the egg conversation. You ever, you know, do you understand what I'm talking about? The chicken, you know, they, they claim, well, you want to take our guns from us. And I'm like, no, we just want to keep crazy people from being able to get them. But the argument always turned to taking something away from me. No, it's making it safe so individuals who don't need it to have them, they don't get them. When it comes to activism, I say, you have to do it. So here's, here's one scary thing for me right now. I just gave you a number of 327 individuals homeless in Holland. Those are actually people living on the street and have no income. Out of that number, about 40% of them deal with mental illness. Now, you're living in a community that don't even want to recognize that that's a problem. A lot of people in here, and I just want to show, raise their hands. How many ever been without lights in their home for more than a week? Raise them up, raise it up. How many people ever been without food for more than a couple of days? Who's ever slept in the street for more than a week? Now imagine having to do that with a family. Then the question becomes, what would you do to put food in your child's mouth. What lengths would you go to do something stupid thinking you're going to provide something good? Now throw mental illness on top of that. What is it going to take for somebody in this town dealing with mental illness to have a gun and think they'll just rob someone just walking down the street and it'll just be okay. But we live in a community that don't even want to recognize that there's even a problem. And there is. I, I spoke at Hope College, I think maybe seven years ago. And I asked them, when you did your orientation, did they tell you not to go past 16th Street? I see some people laughing, but that means some, you heard about that, right? You heard not to travel certain spaces and places in here, in this community. And that's true in some cases. It is dangerous here. But we downplay that. 
there are, there's, uh, there's three gang houses located in Holland that have sex trafficking going on. But no one does anything because we want to ignore it. Activism calls for you to do something. Move. The smallest things. And for me, it's going after the individuals. It's going after the homeless people that needs our help. Finding spaces for them to be at, places to be at, so they won't making sure they got food and money to do laundry and everything, so they're not robbing or doing anything else to anybody else to get it. That's easy to do. Very easy. Anyone in here can do that. Thank you, Pastor Watt. Um, I will just build on what Pastor Watt has said, because one of the things that was striking for me when I finally got off my butt and got involved in trying to do something was I would talk to students on campus and they would say, what can we do? We're just students. Nobody's going to listen to us. The adults are going to do something, right? And then when I was in Charleston, and talking to legislators, they would say, we're the students. This is, we're, we're doing this for them. It's about them. We're not, we're not worried about whining faculty, right? We're the students. And so there was this interesting kind of disconnect where the students thought they didn't have any power. And the legislators were like, well, if the students say it, then maybe we'll listen. Right? They didn't want to listen to us. And I also learned through this action that when it was starting, when we were just getting going, the conventional wisdom was, look, you can't do anything. It's inevitable. We don't have the votes. It's going to pass. And so... What was striking to me was that we did it anyway. We at least wanted to be on the record that we disagreed. And then we stopped it. Because the bill moved through the House, it went to the Senate, and then because of this constant advocacy and this tireless work, two Republican senators changed their mind. And suddenly it, the bill died in committee. And just a few weeks before, that was impossible. It wasn't going to happen until it happened. And then I really got to thinking, because I, I, as an English professor, I'm not, a, I'm not a literary scholar now. I'm a rhetorician. I study rhetoric, right? And I thought, well, one of the most effective ways to convince somebody not to do anything is to tell them that it's hopeless. Right? Like, why try if it's hopeless, if you can't win? And then when we won, I really started thinking, wait a minute. What else is hopeless that we can actually change? And all it takes is action. Is Doing something is applying pressure, not letting it go away, not ignoring it. Keep bringing it to the foreground. Keep making people look at it. And I think we would all be surprised at what is actually possible when we do that action instead of being convinced that we don't have any power.
We've just heard clips today, starting with Hope College presenting two personal stories of going from survivor to activist from Students Demand Action. CBS News interviewed David Hogg in the wake of the recent Nashville shooting. MSNBC spoke with Fred Gutenberg about misinformation around the gun debate and the 2024 election. MSNBC also spoke with Tennessee Representative Justin Jones about the importance of continued action. ThinkTech Hawaii discussed closing loopholes in gun sales laws. MSNBC spoke with Shannon Watts, founder of Moms Demand Action. WSLS 10 spoke with members of the Peacemakers Group in Virginia. The PBS NewsHour looked at the fight over age restrictions on buying guns. And Hope College featured two more speakers discussing the importance of banishing hopelessness by taking action. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard bonus clips from MSNBC discussing the effectiveness of lobbying representatives for action on gun reform. Those calls do matter. Jamming up a fax machine does matter. It can sometimes feel as though our legislators are not listening to us, but they keep tallies of how many of those calls come in and how many voicemails are left and just how full their email inbox is. And Democracy Now! discussed the gun control efforts currently going on in Serbia in response to two mass shootings. Last week, after 17 people were killed in the two mass shootings, including eight children, tens of thousands of people joined protests against gun violence in Belgrade, demanding top government officials resign. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership, because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. This is Aaron from these days just outside Philadelphia. A long time no call, but I wanted to tie together a couple of threads that, that came to me listening to both the bonus episode about loneliness and friendship and the immigration episode, and particularly some things I thought about with the David McWilliams program, the Irish podcast that you featured. And a lot of talking the immigration podcast about, you know, people and, and just immigration in general, where people talk about, you know, nobody leaves unless they have a damn good reason. You know, people don't want to up and leave their country for a lot of reasons. And it made me think about my own story, not that I, well, I mean, I do keep in the back of my head as a queer person in the U.S. that I may have a damn good reason why I need to move in the next decade, unfortunately. But ever since I left college, I, I always assumed I'd, I'd up and move abroad after college. It was just kind of a dream of mine. And, you know, life got in the way and things happened and so on. And it didn't happen in my 20s. And then it didn't happen in my 30s. And suddenly I'm looking at 40 and, you know, it's still in the back of my mind. But I, I came to the realization that I didn't actually want to move anymore because it would upend my entire social support network. The conversation in the bonus show where you talked about as you get older, you realize there's not an infinite pool of friends. And, you know, I, I was looking at, well, what would I need to do to recreate the social network I have, the actual social network, the actual support system, friends, sound family, and so on, if I were to leave the U.S. and leave the area that I grew up in I, I still live pretty close to where I grew up and go to the Netherlands or go to Germany or even just to go to Canada, it would be really hard. And I, I don't know. I got to the point where I realized, you know what, I don't think I can do that anymore. And so I hope to continue to live in southeastern Pennsylvania for probably the rest of my life. But gosh, yeah, it just it really kind of hit for me that, you know, it is it is all connected. You know, it, it takes so much to break those social ties and move to another country. People don't just do that. And, you know, anyway, I could start rambling on about how the same is true of internal migration. And you get bad laws in places like Florida and Texas. And you get people on the left saying, well, why don't they just move out of there? Why don't, you know, trans people just leave? Why don't black people just leave? And it's the same answer. You know, yeah, there's a lot of danger and there's a lot of discomfort in these places. But 
those social ties mean even more. So anyways, me doing the usual thing of pulling a couple different threads together. Thanks as always for the show. Stay awesome. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record or text us a message at 202-999-3991 or send an email to j at bestofleft.com. And thanks to Aaron for her thoughts. I think that ignoring those obvious elements of the human condition that make it a very hard choice to decide to immigrate to a new country is one of the primary results of the campaign to dehumanize migrants generally. If you dehumanize them, then you can project any kind of nefarious motivations onto them to fit a political narrative. If you understand them as fully human, with very much the same needs and wants as the rest of us, then you couldn't help but draw those same conclusions as Aaron just did. Now, for those who missed the bonus show, obviously, I encourage you to become a member and hear it for yourself. But in short, we talked about relationships and friendships and those sorts of things that Aaron was talking about. We talked about how it's easier to see the benefits of moving away than it is to see what you'll be losing out on. And I think this is particularly the case for men and boys who are not particularly socialized to highly value close friendships. And I told a story of my own that that maps onto that pretty perfectly. And, you know, now clearly, there are lots of interlocking reasons for the loneliness epidemic that we're going through, people moving away because we have a highly mobile society where it's relatively easy to pick up and move to a new place seems to be a major contributor to it. But regarding men and boys, I got thinking more about the impact of homophobia. And this did come up a little bit in the bonus show. We didn't address it exactly head on, but we talked about the sort of emotional disconnectedness that men tends to have and things, you know, the weird little phenomenon like uh, two men going to a movie theater together, but leaving a seat between them, right? Like homophobia is definitely a major undercurrent in, in those sorts of interactions. And as a child of the 80s, I can absolutely attest to growing up with the word gay being completely synonymous with bad. That's just what it meant. And besides that, the sheer amount of total energy dedicated to not being perceived as gay was off the charts. And this wasn't just for people who were actively homophobic, you know, hateful or desiring to keep gay people out of the mainstream of society or anything like that. I don't think I ever fell into that category. I don't recall ever having a problem with other people being gay. But that didn't stop me from really, really not wanting to be perceived that way myself. So even though there are other factors at play regarding how people find themselves to be lonely these days, it sort of crystallized for me today that growing up in a culture absolutely infused with homophobia leads boys to burn up a ton of emotional and social dynamic energy, figuring out how to keep friends at just the right amount of arm's length distance. Because it's nice to have friends, but if you get too close, then it might seem a little gay. And that doesn't have to be a conscious thought that goes through anyone's head. It's just that homophobia has systematically impacted the dynamic of what we consider to be normal male friendships and relationships in a way that stunts emotional connectedness and therefore keeps those friendship bonds weaker than they might otherwise be for fear of being perceived as gay. So it's no wonder then that these weaker friendship ties would make it easier to move away from where you grew up and all of the friends that you knew, thereby putting you at risk of loneliness. And if you do move to a new place, those same dynamics are going to make it harder to make new connections. Now, I don't have data to back up what I'm saying, but this is making a lot of sense to me as the as the pieces started falling into place as I was thinking about it today. So this sort of reminds me of how racism ended up depriving all people of public swimming pools because segregationists would rather fill in a public pool with cement than allow it to be integrated. Now, th this is not quite as stark as that, but in a very real way, I think that bigotry against gay people has helped deprive many, many, many men and boys of the kinds of close friendships that they may have otherwise had, and we're all worse off for it. 
As always, keep the comments coming in. You can leave us a voicemail or send us a text message to 202-999-3991 or email me to j at bestofleft.com. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to our transcriptionist trio, Ken, Brian, and LaWindy for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com slash support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good and often funny bonus episodes, just like the one that we mentioned in a fair amount of detail today. In addition to there being extra content, no ads, and chapter markers in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player. And you can join the discussion on our Discord community. There's a link to join in the show notes. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bestoftheleft.com.